Ember here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage for tonight. Um, So this evening we'll be reading from John chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have some um, in the lobby. We invite you to grab one of those and keep that as our gift to you. Um, You can also, of course, look it up on your phone or on your computer if you're watching at home. So once again, we're reading from John chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is God's word. Thanks so much, Betsy. Well, good evening, everybody. And for those of you who are new, a warm welcome to you. Uh, my name is Steve, lead pastor here. And for the past six months, we went through First Peter. And so what we're doing last week and this week is we're looking at the end of the Gospel of John to see how Peter, this guy who wrote the amazing letter of First Peter, went from being such a self-centered, proud individual to the gentle shepherd who wrote First Peter. And This passage, it's so powerful, Um, and the more I was reflecting on it this week, the more I'm convinced the more you mature as a Christian, i.e. the more you you realize how much you you need Jesus, this passage means more and more. So I hope for us today, this passage means less to us today than it will, you know, 10 years from now. But here's what we see from Jesus' side of the equation. We see a wonderful example of what does it look like to respond to somebody in the church who wounds you. And then from Peter's perspective, what we see is... You know, I mean, what do you do when you fail? And I don't think I'm stretching my imagination to assume that probably most of you here have some sort of skeleton in your closet, probably. Uh, And if not now, something will happen in the future. And at minimum, you know, there's a part of you that you you know you're weak, that you know you're flawed in. And what's amazing about this interaction with Jesus and Peter is we see not just Jesus forgive and restore Peter, but he makes him great because of his weakness. Uh, which our culture just doesn't have a category for. So let's walk through this story in these three movements. First, we'll look at Jesus approaches Peter. Then we'll see how Jesus responds, or then we'll see how Peter responds to Jesus. And then number three, we'll see how has Peter changed as a result of this interaction with Jesus. So number one, Jesus approaches Peter. Uh, Number two, Peter responds to Jesus. Act three, uh, how does Peter change as, as a result of this amazing encounter with Jesus. Okay, so first number one, Jesus approaches 
Peter. So uh, we started in verse 15 when Jesus asked him the question, but let's set, let's set the scene a little bit. If you guys were here last week, it ended in verse 14 with this kind of enchanting scene where the sun's rising over the beach, Jesus is cooking fresh bread and fish for his disciples. They're sitting in companionable silence around the fire, but there's a problem. Can you, can you feel it? Because there's unresolved tension between Peter and Jesus. Have you guys ever been at a social gathering around a dinner table where there's unresolved tension between two people? Or between, of course you have. It's the worst feeling in the world. Okay, so this is what, and everybody knows it, uh, but the, the topic hasn't been broached yet. And more than that, they're around a charcoal fire. And this is not insignificant because, so they say that smell is one of the greatest triggers of memory. So, for example, for me, anytime I smell fresh-cut grass, immediately I'm transported to summer mornings when I was 13, and I'm biking home from swim practice, you know, that sweet ache in your lungs and body from, from swim practice, and I get home, I grab my lawnmower, and I walk around the neighborhood, and I mow lawns for like 35 bucks an hour, which, by the way, is an amazing hourly wage for a 13-year-old and an adult, too. Why, why am I not mowing yards today? I don't know. <laughs> okay. But it was, every time I smell fresh cut, I'm immediately, you know, just transported to those blissful summer days as a teenager. But for Peter, when he smells this charcoal fire that they're around, this memory is anything but pleasant. Because there's actually, there's only one other place in the Gospel of John where, a, with this, where this word here for charcoal fire is used. Do you know where it is? So it's in, I believe it's John 18, where Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire when he denied and betrayed his Savior. And so for Peter, this is anything but pleasant. So he's just wallowing in his guilt. And so... For those of you who know this story, don't let the familiarity of it, you know, numb you to how astonishing this is. So, like, think about this. So we could give Peter a pass if he just denied Peter one. You know, sometimes you're in a high-pressure situation, somebody asks you a question, and you say something you didn't mean to, and then you're like, oh, sorry, you know, I wasn't thinking, that that wasn't really me, that wasn't me. But if you do something not once or twice, but three times— Oh, that's you. Like, that, that is so you. That's who you are. And so that's who Peter is. And more than that, the third time that Jesus threw Jesus into the dust, we're told in the book of Mark that Jesus called, or that Peter called down curses on Jesus. So in the shame and honor culture where loyalty is everything, by Peter going, you know, beep, 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 like calling down curses on Jesus, what he's doing is cementing for anyone who will listen I have nothing to do with this man while Jesus is, you know, being tied up and abused by the mob. This, this is bad. This is really bad. And you know, try to put yourself in Jesus' situation. Imagine giving everything for somebody. And then even something as mild as hearing them in the room, you know, you overhear a conversation next door. They're just betraying your trust, throwing your name in the mud, telling everyone in the group, you know, about your weaknesses, like how that would cut you to the core. So it's unforgivable, unforgivable from without for Jesus, but also for, for Peter. I mean, he, it was revealed to him that he had a capacity, not just for cowardice, but for cruelty that he had no idea he had. And so... They're sitting around, the breakfast is over, and then Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. 
And you can imagine Peter just thinking like, oh my gosh, please don't say anything about that Friday night. Please just ask me about the weather. Please just ask me like how the breakfast tasted. But no, Jesus says, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than Thomas? Do you love me more than Mary? I don't know. Because you said you did. Your exact words were, quote, These may abandon you. I will never abandon you. I just had to cut Peter to the core. And then Jesus goes on, and he asks him three times, Do you love me? To mirror Peter denying him three times. And so, if you're reading this story afresh, like you have to ask, Jesus, isn't that kind of cruel? You know, Peter knows he messed up. You know, so why are you like why are you digging this in? And everyone else is around. And but here's the thing: Jesus is not shaming Peter. Peter betrayed and denied Jesus three times around a charcoal fire publicly. So now Jesus is forgiving and restoring Peter three times around a charcoal fire publicly. And so as a quick application here, it's worth pointing out what Jesus does not do. Jesus doesn't say, meh, I'm resurrected, water under the bridge, bygones be bygones, let's not talk about it. No, Jesus, he brings it up. And this is because Jesus knows that for true reconciliation and healing between two parties to take place when there's been a wrong, it has to be acknowledged between both parties. And, and you know this. So say after church, if I were to leave a little bit before you and you walk outside and you see me pulling out of my parking spot and I sideswipe your car and I put a you know, three-foot dent in it and I roll down the window and I'm like, uh, you're a Christian, you know, bygones be bygones, you'll forgive me, right? And I just drive off. You'd be thinking, yeah, I'll forgive you, but we have to, we have to talk about it. And just as it's true with a you know, material or a financial debt, the same thing is true with a, an, with a relational or an emotional debt. When some, if, you just, if you hear someone say something to you or around you, and it, it cuts you in some way, the only way for healing to happen for you and for that person is to, to actually have a conversation about it. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I, um, I, I grew up in a family where sometimes you know, something bad would happen in the family, and then we'd have a dinner, and no one would talk about it. You know, like, no one would act as if anything had happened. That's not a healthy dynamic, by the way. But what Jesus is modeling here is he's approaching Peter to talk about it, not to vindicate himself, not to make Peter feel bad. He's doing it because he loves Peter. And this is the only way for reconciliation to actually happen. And so, just an encouragement to you, I mean, for those, especially for those of you who hate awkward or uncomfortable conversations. I hate awkward conversations. That might surprise you because I often stumble into them all the time unintentionally. <laughs> hey, why are you laughing? Um, but but I, I hate them. But just, you know, so if, if that's your, your personality type, especially in a culture that through so many means encourages us to run from really hard in-person conversations— uh, just to, to look at what Jesus does here and how he loves Peter and cares for him enough by actually just talking to him about what happened. Okay, so that's the first thing is Jesus approaches Peter, yeah, but not to belittle him, but to, to show so much grace and to restore the relationship between, between the two of them. Number two, okay, so how does, how does Peter respond? 
And here's what Peter doesn't do. Peter doesn't grovel. So when Jesus says, you know, so when Jesus is saying, Simon, Peter, do you love me more than these? You know, put it another way, he's saying, you know, Peter, you failed me. You betrayed me. And when Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, notice what he's not doing. He's like, oh my gosh, Jesus, yeah, I know I failed you. I just can't even believe you created me. I'm a scourge to anyone who knows me. I'm just going to, you know, go binge Netflix for a week. No, when he stands there and he says, Jesus, you know that I love you. What he's doing is he's essentially saying, yes, Jesus, I failed you big time. And now I'm just here to hear whatever you have for me. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to listen to you? So he's not wallowing. He's, he's staying on the table, if you will, to let Jesus do the surgery. And so for those of you who are wallowers, you know, you just love to sit in your own self-pity. Um, just saying that, that is a form of pride because you're, you're focusing on yourself and you're not actually letting Jesus forgive you. So, so he's not wallowing. But number two, he doesn't minimize. So he doesn't say, well, yeah, Jesus, I mean, come on. Like, we were in Gethsemane earlier that night, and I didn't sleep well when I was sleeping on the floor. And, you know, the other disciples ran away from you too, but I don't see you chastising them. He doesn't make excuses. He owns it. He says, Jesus, yeah, I, I failed you big time. Will you please forgive me? And so just think about, even in your prayer life, if... If your prayer life is categorized by this kind of repentance, because this is true repentance here, not wallowing, but also not minimizing. And because one of the most dangerous signs of having a hard heart is if there's just a recurring theme in your prayer life where, you know, you're asking for things, which is fine, and you're thanking God for things, which is fine. But if, if repentance isn't regularly in your prayer, basically what you're saying is, like, I'm fine. I'm a nice, decent person. Like, what do I have to repent of? And it might not be a specific incident from the past week, but you can pray things like the psalmist, like, Lord, please, like, create in me a clean heart, like, reveal in me if there's any offensive way in me. And so that you can be, I mean, maybe it's not a specific act, but it could just be, and probably is, it can just be like the general disposition of self-centeredness that we tend to carry from sunrise to sunset, or a general disposition of looking at others and thinking, oh, you know, they're hypocritical or they're not following Jesus as well as me or looking at other people instead of actually looking at yourself. And the point of repentance here, it's, it's, again, it's not to just sit in the mud. It makes all the difference in the world because here's what happens. When Peter is genuinely, it says he, was, he, it says he was grieved the, th- the third time that he asked for forgiveness. Like Peter's feeling this. When Peter fully stares his failure in the face, it's like, I have nothing to stand on. See how Jesus replies. So he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs, verse 15. He says to him a second time, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? I.e., Peter, you failed me. And then Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I.e., yes, I failed you. And he says, tend my sheep. And that word there for tend is the word for shepherd. So here's what Jesus is saying. The God would call his leaders shepherds all the time. And so when Peter says, yes, I failed you, Jesus says, you're in charge now. What? And so here's what, this just struck me like a, a lightning bolt this week. So here's what's happening. Well, Peter, I mean, he's at his lowest point. And, you know, everyone's looking at him. He's probably thinking, how could I be of any use to anybody? And at Peter's lowest point, Jesus plunges into his heart the greatest affirmation in the world. And he says, yes, you, Peter, 
the one who everyone mocks for being emotional and impulsive, you are going to be the rock upon whom which I build my church. Because this is what he's saying. He's saying, Peter, before you're always too strong. Before, Peter, you're always thinking about yourself. You're always thinking how other Christ followers weren't, weren't good enough disciples. Before, you were always too unbroken to be my disciple. But now, your weakness driven into my strength. Your insufficiency in sin wrapped in my greatness and mercy. That is what's going to make you one of the greatest leaders. Because now your identity isn't rooted in yourself. You're just captured by my mercy. And for you, this should be so invigorating and hope-filling for you. Because what Jesus is, by extension, saying to you and me as well is, do you feel weak? Like, do you feel like you just can never get it together? You are precisely the kind of raw material that I love to make into my chief disciples and leaders. So much better someone who's been a Christian for a month or for four years and who's humble, who knows their brokenness and their need for mercy every day than someone who's been a Christian for 20 years and can recite, you know, six books of the Bible from memory, who is constantly relying on their own strength and their own self-assurance. And here's why this type of person like Peter, who's been so thrown into the gutter but leaning on Christ, Christ's mercy makes such a great leader. Because what do you want in a leader? And how, like, if you're a leader, which all of you are in some degree, there's always people you're leading. Like, what do you want in a leader? One, you want someone who's confident, you know, someone who leads with resolve and isn't always up and down based on the inevitable betrayals and frustrations that happen when, when you're leading people or criticisms that come your way. But also with a leader, you don't want someone who's arrogant. You don't want someone who's brash. You also want in a leader someone who's confident but yet is open to, open to correction somebody who's quick to ask for forgiveness, somebody who's tender, not domineering, somebody who wants other people to come in and share power with them rather than just hoarding it to themselves. And it's only through Christ that this kind of leadership is possible. We can have this humble, humble confidence. And I came across an article in the New York Times that was written just a few weeks ago. It was written by this girl named Lee Stein. She's not a Christian. And she wrote an article called The Empty Religion of Instagram. And here she's talking about, she, you know, she herself identifies as a nun, so somebody who wouldn't say they're religious, but also wouldn't say they're an atheist or materialist, so like they're kind of a spiritual person looking for higher meaning, and she's a millennial. And she said, as I've looked at, you know, the common spirituality of the 22% of millennials who identify as nuns, so they're not, you know, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, but they're also, they also wouldn't say they're an atheist, the most common form of spirituality I find is a blend of self-care spirituality combined with a crusading political activism. So I, th- I think she nails it. So these two things have come together. She says, this is the new spirituality for millennials, and their priests now, or their televangelists, are, are social media self-help influencers. And then here's what she says. She says, I was once one of those millennials who made politics her religion. I lasted three years as a feminist activist and organizer before I burned out in 2017. That's when I began noticing how the social media industry relies on keeping us outraged and engaged. It's no wonder we're seeking relief. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling out a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. The people we've chosen as our moral leaders aren't challenging us to ask the questions our faith leaders have wrestled with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? 
What should we believe in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? The whole economy of Instagram is based on our thinking about ourselves, posting about ourselves, working on ourselves. And then here's, here's where she ends. Um, I'm craving role models my age who are not only righteous crusaders, but also humble and merciful. Yet I'm not finding them where I live online. We're looking for guidance in all the wrong places. Maybe we actually need to go to something like church. And you hear what she's saying. She's saying, I want to find moral leaders who are not only righteous crusaders, i.e. like people who are fighting for justice, fighting for good things, but all the leaders that, I, that, that I've looked to and I know a lot of the leaders that my friends are watching, they only fuel the moral outrage and belittling of people on the other side of the aisle that continues to make the kind of compromises we need in a democracy impossible. So how can I find someone who leads with conviction but is also merciful and humble and doesn't just like cause us to, to be more obsessed with ourselves as a means of self-actualization? And that's, that's exactly what Jesus gives. Because it's only in Christ where you can have that, that humility and confidence together where you can look at someone who disagrees with you and actually show humility and mercy and listen from them and learn from them. Apparently she had a lot of like Christians reaching out to her, like asking her to accept Jesus. And she was like, I was raised in the church. I'm not a Christian right now. Maybe one day. Um, so, I mean, do you see like the, the very practical, even social implications of receiving this kind of forgiveness from Jesus? And then just one more on a personal level, guys. Um, Think about the difference it makes if you really take to heart what Peter's experiencing here from Jesus. Because what I love about Jesus here is he's not treating Peter as a project to be managed. It's not like, okay, there's this conflict that happened. I got to deal with it. No, he, he likes Peter. And he doesn't just want to forgive him, but he wants him in proximity with him and restored relationship with him. And so just what difference would it make as you're putting your head on the pillow at night and instead of thinking whatever you think about when you try to sleep, or sleep, just thinking about how much Jesus really loves you and really likes you. And not only that, but commits to giving you his strength because his power is made perfect in your weakness. Because that, that's, somebody, that's how Peter responds, like true repentance and just lifts him up to the stars. So now number three, how has Peter changed as a result of all this? Okay, verse 18. Jesus says, after he says, feed my sheep, i.e., I want you to be a, my chief disciple and leader. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. So when he uses this phrase of you will stretch out your hands, there's a double meaning here. So first he's referring, as John writes in the next verse, he's referring to how Peter's going to die. And as a result of following Jesus... Peter is going to be crucified. And from what we know from history, uh, Peter was crucified upside down. Apparently, he didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified in the same way that his Savior was. So he has to be crucified upside down. I mean, what redemption? Going from denying Jesus from, you know, in front of people he didn't even know to wanting to be crucified for Christ rather than deny his Redeemer again. What, what redemption? But number two, when Peter says you're going to stretch out your hands, here's what Jesus is saying. To live, it, he's also describing the life he's going to live before his crucifixion. And so to live with your arms out, th that's a posture of vulnerability, right? So if your arm, you know, you're not in a defensive posture, your arms are out. And so when you go to love others and you enter into it with a posture of vulnerability, you know, this is kind of like even how you go in for a hug, you're opening yourself up to be hurt. 
But that's always a risk that you need to take when you go to love people as Jesus first loved us because we, we hurt each other as human beings. And so he's saying, Peter, you know, you're going to, instead of always protecting yourself, you're going to have to live a life of vulnerability. And when he says, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, um, but another will dress you, i.e. me, and carry you where you do not want to go. And what Jesus is telling Peter is, Peter, before you became a Christian, before you started following me, your life was largely about you. You know, sure, you were generous here and there. You might give to charity here. Sure, you're generous to your family members. But and this is true for us. You know, before you're a Christian, really at the end of the day, your bottom line is about just how can I maximize my happiness here during my time on earth? But once you follow Jesus, that grid, it's flipped upside down. And now like your bottom line is not how can I be the most happy, but how can I give to other people as Jesus first gave to me? And what, notice how Jesus, one of the, the key ways Jesus ties this, like how do you live a life of vulnerability and living for others rather than yourself he says, feed my lambs. G- Peter says, you know I love you. And then Jesus immediately connects it to feed my lambs, i.e. people in the church. So he's saying, like, central to following Jesus is you love and move toward people in the church. And this metaphor of a lamb, that's a, this is a very deliberate image. Lambs look cute on photos and if you're playing Settlers of Catan, you know, on those little Settlers cards, like the lambs look cute. But I don't know if you guys have ever seen a lamb in real life or up close. Uh, I was part of a nativity set when I was six years old. I remember this lamb was super close. I was like, you are not as cute as you look in the picture. Like, they're, they're all gnarled and flea-ridden, and they, they don't do anything for you. I mean, we know they're stupid, but they don't even do anything for you. They don't give you gratitude. You know, at least a cat, you feed them, and they, they nuzzle you, and, you know, they'll, they'll cuddle with you. Sheep don't do that. And so when, Jesus, said, when he, Jesus calls me a lamb and you a lamb, he's saying when you love people in the church, what this means is you move toward and spend time and care for people where often you get nothing in return from. Like that's often, but this is what it means to follow me. Like inextricably connected. And I heard this story from an old man. I think he's 95. He's still alive. His name's Dick Lucas. He's an old English minister. And he's highly educated, uh, relevant to the story. And so when he was younger, he went to a boarding school to teach teenagers at their, during their chapel time for a week. And he said, so and he was also, he was a lifelong bachelor. And I think he was in his 40s or 50s at this point in his life. And he said to his horror, at the start of the week, the headmaster gets him. And he says, hey, you know, Mr. Lucas, he's not only going to be teaching you at noon every, every day of the week, he's also going to be available all day for any of you who want to come and just talk with him about your problems and, you know, just sit with him. And, and he was thinking, oh my gosh, I do not want to do this. And so these 13, 14, he, he said something to the effect of, um, to, to put it mildly, I've always found children to be a trial. And for the children here, by the way, we love you and we can learn so much from you. Uh, but so this is Dick Lucas talking. He says, throughout the week, you know, these 13, 14-year-olds are coming in. And all they want to talk about is they have a crush on so-and-so, but they're not even noticed by the person they have a crush on. It's just the end of the world. And come Wednesday, Thursday, he's just like, oh, my word. Is there, you know, he's Cambridge educated. He's just thinking, is there anyone around here that I can go to the theater with? You know, someone I can talk about erudite literature with? Like, why do I have to talk about these 13-year-old crushes that are not going to matter for months from now. And he said later that week, he started reading John 21. It was just knocked on his face. And because what Jesus was telling Dick Lucas is he was saying, you know, Dick, I don't get much out of my relationship with you. You're my lamb. Now take care of my other lambs. 
And so, guys, I know even in a church where we're mostly in the same age range, there's still people that rub you the wrong way or just people you don't find fun to be around. And it's just, it's so important that we're patient with one another, <laughs> that we move toward one another to have the hard conversations and be tender with one another as, as Christ first was with us. I mean, if, this, if Peter was changed in that way, then we can be too. Okay, and then the second way, how does Peter change? And this is how it ends. And so verse 20, um, so now it sounds like uh, Jesus and Peter are walking along the beach. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during supper. And it said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is one of the most hilarious passages, I think, in the Bible, but it also contains one of the most profound lessons. So Jesus has basically just told Peter, well, he did just tell Peter, Peter, you're going to be crucified at the end of your life for following me. And immediately, Peter turns around and he sees John, you know, John's a thinker, so he's probably just like walking along the beach like this, thinking about 15 yards behind Peter and Jesus. Peter hears he's going to be cru- and immediately he goes, what about him? <laughs> You can imagine Jesus, like, putting his head into his hands and be like, Peter, we just had this great seminar where I thought you learned so much, but now, all of a sudden, you want to make sure John's going to die the same kind of painful death that you do. Like, what is wrong with you? But what does Jesus tell This This is amazing. Jesus, he looks at Peter and he says, if it's my will that he doesn't die like that, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, you only worry about your story. And this is why in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the lion, who's the Christ figure, there's this scene where Avarice, this young girl, she's worried about what's going to happen with this other girl. And she says, you know, what's going to happen to her? And Aslan looks at her and she goes, child, I'm telling you your story, not hers. No one has told any story but their own. And, you know, just think about how often you end up coveting or feeling discontent or angry because you're constantly preoccupied with other people. Think about, well, this person has it better than me. This person has more gifts than me. This person has a better life than me. Or maybe, you know, people in your life who don't know Jesus and your heart aches for them to, to know Christ, which you should. Or you're angry about somebody because they're making dumb decisions and you just want to control them, but you, you can't and shouldn't try to control them. And what Jesus is telling Peter here is, of course you should love and be in the lives of other people, but don't be so preoccupied with other people that you miss the story that you're in with me. Your story, all you need to know, your story is I made myself so vulnerable for you on a cross where my hands were nailed to wood and I took on the wrath and judgment of God in your place to give you more than you could ever ask or imagine I rose from the dead to give you a new heart and give you life everlasting with me in a new creation. And I've promised you that my power will be made perfect in your weakness until that great and final day. That's all you need to think about. So you follow me. You know, Peter went from a, he went from a self-centered man who couldn't stop thinking about himself to being a gentle, humble dude who just couldn't stop giving himself for other people. And he did this because he first saw Jesus become vulnerable for him on the cross, even after Peter betrayed him. And Jesus, he not only forgave him, he restored him and commissioned him to be one of his greatest leaders because it's the greatest repenters 
And it's those who know their weakness, who know their weak, but wrapped up in the strength of Jesus, who make the greatest disciples. And if, if, if he did it for Peter, he can do it for you. And so just look at Jesus as he looks you in the eye and says, I love you, I've forgiven you. Now you follow me. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for um, just how merciful you are. Thank you so much for loving us uh, when we fail you over and over again. And not only that, but you love proximity with us and you take our weaknesses and infuse your power into them to actually make us great. Uh, help me to practice that more and help our church to be uh, identified as a people who know they're weak, uh, who aren't trying to posture ourselves to others, but when people see us, may they say, wow, they know they are weak, uh, but they are so convinced that their Savior's power is made perfect in their weakness. Thank you for how you restored Peter, and may you do the same for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.